Hi, thank you for joining me again. Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. Here's a book that I read recently, a new one I haven't covered before. It's called A Toxic New Religion by Scott Allen and Daryl Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R and Allen, A-L-L-E-N. Subtitle, Understanding the Postmodern Neo-Marxist Faith that Seeks to Destroy the Judeo-Christian Culture of the West. That's pretty discouraging. Um, they, they started the book out of a, a series of articles that they did with a blog, and it said they were trying to get their heads around what was going on in the culture, and even in the evangelical church, in areas like social justice, uh, sexuality, race, and gender, and they said they reached a conclusion, and I think they're right, that what's going on is an emergence of a whole new religion. And they give a quick background, you know, for a long time Christianity was the dominant religion in the West, and it gave everybody a moral and physical framework, and that's the way they would understand their lives and purpose and reality and identity. But as we all know, the West is secularized, and there's a religious vacuum now. Uh, secularism hasn't provided the kind of meaning that people were hoping would replace Christianity. They dumped Christianity, and what have they gotten? Not much. And uh, it says secularism is basically hedonism these days. Eat, drink, and be merry. And they said for a lot of people, that's not enough. You want meaning in your life, a purpose that's bigger than that. And with Christianity not an option, who's going to fill that hole in the soul, they say. And so here we go. It's uh, neo-Marxist assumptions here. And they, they point out that ideas have consequences. So it says the basic beliefs of the Bible and the biblical worldview helped make the West a relatively free, prosperous civilization. Certainly not perfect. But they said now what we're seeing, what's replacing this um, old way of seeing things, this toxic new religion, is giving us a culture marked by, they say, hatred, division, and the crumbling of older norms, standards, and institutions. So the point of the book is to see how did this happen, and what are the consequences, and what can we as Christians do because we still believe in truth. So that's their background. Chapter one, I'm just going to work my way through the book in several podcasts, because I think this is really a valuable book. Uh, but I'll just do a, a few chapters at a time here. So they started off and they talked about the going back and thinking about the Puritan days, Puritan colonists, and uh, said most people think of things like the Scarlet Letter, Hawthorne with those vicious people mean to somebody in the town. And then you think of the Salem witch trials and you think of that, about that scary sermon from Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I know that was in our textbook that I uh, used for our college class at, at my school where I taught, as well as other things by Edwards. But those are the things most people think of. And they said that's what a lot of people recognize. That, that was the founding fathers, right, of this country way, way, way back, that it was all religious bigotry and anger and things like that. But it says uh, the person that wrote this book, one of the people that wrote it, Scott Allen, said several years later he started reading books that hadn't been covered in school. And he found some really interesting things. Uh, he found out that, yes, the Christian colonists, they were flawed people, but Compared to most of us, they were spiritual giants. And actually, if you see the truth of what was going on back then, that a lot of today, what's good and true and beautiful, can be traced back to these people and their biblical worldview and the institutions and the culture that they established. And so Scott realized, 
You know, he said, I wasn't really taught history. I was dictated a particular narrative that was given to me. And he says, what happens? How does that work? He says, first, a narrative, if you're told a story, it usually has defined characters and it has really clear good and evil. So pretty obvious. The stories were told about the Puritan days. Who's it, who are the evil ones? The Puritans. Who are the oppressed victims? Native Americans. And uh, they said, secondly, a narrative involves a distortion of the facts. There's a degree of truth, yes. There were Salem witch trials, yes. Uh, there were examples of the Puritan colonists inhumanely treating Native Americans. But is that the whole picture? No, not at all. That uh, leaves out so much information that, frankly, it's very deceptive. And he said, take a look at what's going on today with the college board. They have a new curriculum for the advanced placement European history. And what does it do? It focuses on the same distorted teaching of history. It says, what you notice is now they're pushing a high school curriculum in which Columbus is absent. Churchill has just a short mention. Uh, the, the history of Europeans is shown as secular progressivism. And that's about it. So they said, you got to be careful. They said, narratives are stories that are easy to grasp, and they're morality tales. The good and the bad are very clearly defined. Uh, narratives are tools that are used to accomplish some objectives. Usually it's uh, cultural or maybe political or social objectives. So they're trying to not tell us what happened in the past. They're trying to change us. They're trying to shape policy and culture. Now, how do they do that? These stories are often, uh, they work through distortion. Uh, they portray it as true, but it's a distorted picture. And it says, finally, narratives work powerfully by leveraging our emotions. And I think that's so important. I think about television shows today and movies. Who are the characters that are most sympathetic? Usually it's the ones that they want to push hard with their agenda. The LGBTQ community or some other minority group, they're always the, the nicest and the, the best people. If you want villains, they're going to be Christians, they're going to be conservatives. So narratives work really well by leveraging our emotions. We need more Christians involved with the media. And thank goodness it's starting to get there. Uh, media uh, companies are starting to come along and giving people wholesome uh, entertainment as well as uh, giving us truth. So that's nice to see. They said narratives are finding receptive hearts, open to the objectives of the people who spread them. More people are gravitating toward these distortions and the appeals. Truth and facts are just being tossed aside. So the question is, well, how did we shift so radically from fact to narrative? And they said, postmodernism. And that's going to be what they want to focus on. Now, I'll tell you this. I have heard recently things suggesting that postmodernism may actually be on its way out because it can't sustain itself. Uh, it's got some built-in self-refuting ideas. I hope they're right. This book came out in 2020, A Toxic New Religion, and I'm hoping that we're starting to see the waning of postmodernism. But they said postmodernism is a rejection of truth or reality beyond the individual. There's no truth out there. There's no God. There's no transcendent source of meaning. So there's nothing beyond us. There's no meta-narrative, one big story, just a bunch of narratives. Everybody's got his or her own. There's no truth to be discovered. It's created. So basically, if you take God out of the picture, each individual then essentially is a little deity, a sovereign maker of meaning. Postmodernists don't say, well, is that true? Does that align with reality? What did they say? Does it work? 
how does it make me feel? And the social theorist, Jeremy Rifkin, said, this is, this is what it's like. We no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behavior conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It's our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world. And because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behavior, for we're now the architects of the universe. We are responsible for nothing outside ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Do you hear that last comment? Kind of a riff on a Christian theme. We are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. But they point out at the end of this first chapter, it doesn't matter what people think, God exists. He's the eternal personal creator. He's the one who defines reality. He defines what's good, true, and beautiful. So what happens, <clears throat> they point out, what happens when people don't seek the truth but believe they create the truth? What happens? What social goods are lost when people don't think there's an external reality beyond their own minds? It says the sobering answers come in our next chapter. So this is chapter two, and I think I'll have time to do maybe the second chapter here. It's called The Assault on Western Civilization Begins. They said, you know, you think about Western civilization, what are the roots? Well, you got the Greeks, you got the Romans, and they got the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so that's where we all got started. Now, in the 18th century, they said there was a problem that this worldview, this Western civilization, split into two streams. You had a science stream and a faith stream. They call this the Age of Enlightenment. They said, you know, what's actually ironic about it is that the scientific method came out of the Judeo-Christian doctrine about who God is. And I think that's important to take a minute and talk about that because I've covered this when I discuss science. You know, Christianity and science are not at war. In fact, it was modern science came out of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Why? Well, here it is. Judeo-Christian worldview says there's a rational, personal, and purposeful creator God. Now, notice the key part there. He's rational. He creates a, a, an orderly and beautiful universe. All right, well, if it's orderly, then here comes the creation of people who can look at this orderly world and begin to figure it out because he created us as free, rational, creative beings. We're fallen, but we're creative and we have a mandate given to us by God to rule over creation, to cause it to flourish, to unlock its mysteries and innovate for the good of others. If you didn't have those worldview assumptions, they all came from the Judeo-Christian perspective, then you wouldn't have modern science. So gradually, because of this view, and as science progressed, the, some of the mysteries of the natural, natural world began to be revealed. But that was a lot of pride. People said, huh, through science and human reason alone, we can know everything. We don't need God. We don't need angels. We don't need demons. We're enlightened. We know all things. We're like God ourselves. Well, same time that the Enlightenment was going on, Christianity was dealing with a Reformation, and it began a battle over how people related to God. And now Western civilization has split at that time philosophically and that's continuing into the present age. One part is defined by atheism. That's, of course, a rejection of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And then the other part is still people that follow the Judeo-Christian roots of Western culture. We know that. We see that. They said that atheistic side got a lot of momentum in the 19th century. Why? 
how about one name, Darwin? And it said it was this atheistic part of our culture that associated itself with science and reason, which, of course, we found out before is not true. It was science and reason that came about because of Christianity. So out of this became a whole materialistic worldview. The universe is just a bunch of matter in motion. And they said, here's the catch, though. Materialism doesn't provide any basis for us to expect an orderly universe or natural laws or for understanding why humans transcend nature and their ability to do things like create and discover and reason. And so they said, you can see these two competing streams, the atheistic stream and the Judeo-Christian stream. So just take a look at the two most famous revolutions of the 1700s. You know where I'm going with this. There's the American and the French. So Allen and Miller start off talking about the American revolutionaries, said whether they're Christians like Washington and Adams or Deists like Franklin and Jefferson, they valued religious belief and morality strongly. Um, a number of them actually spoke openly about the doctrines of the Christian faith and how important it was uh, for us to put up a, a government that was governed by ourselves with liberty. I mean, here's what John Adams says. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young gentlemen could unite. And he says, what are these principles? Adam says, the general principles of Christianity. So America's founding fathers held belief that God should not be compelled by the state either. It had to be chosen freely so they didn't beat you over the head as far as uh, forcing you to believe a certain way. So I said, you know, apart from the Judeo-Christian belief, we don't have any ground for individual human freedom or human rights. Now what comes along? Well, a few years later, you get the French Revolution. And this is not good. It was a product of the atheist stream of Western thought. Its leaders pretty much rejected God. And what did they want to do? They not only wanted to overthrow the monarchy, but the church. They were going to form a man-centered, humanistic society. It was going to be based on the goddess of reason. And how did that turn out? Well, you know how that turned out, but I will stop at this point. The third chapter starts in on the birth of the modern. And I think that's big enough. I want to save that for another look. So again, this book is looking at the postmodern neo-Marxist faith. So it touches on critical race theory. And this is so important today. Our society is just swamped with CRT, critical race theory ideas. So we've got this, I guess you could call it a cultural acid going on. It's eating away what we had as a free and open society, our, our pillars of it. And uh, so we'll take a look at what's going on here of this new culture and what it's going to produce and, and ways that we can deal with it. Again, the book is called A Toxic New Religion. It's important. I think we need to be aware of this. I do a talk on uh, CRT and other things associated with this postmodern view. It's a grim view, but like I said, it self-destructs, which is good news. You can't live it. And I think people are beginning to discover that. All right, well, thanks for being part of this podcast, and we'll do another one really soon.